right, so again, welcome. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm excited for this message as we're continuing the series on sex and sexuality. And this morning, before we begin, I want to talk to you a little bit about Colorado, what it's like to live at a high altitude. Some of you know that at 25 years ago, I graduated from seminary, and I literally finished my last preaching class, walked out of the building, got in my Mazda 626 that did not have air conditioning, and drove straight through the desert to Colorado Springs, where I moved there, and about three weeks later, Becky and I got married, and I started my internship at a mega church. So living in Colorado is kind of this wonderful experience. It's probably one of the most beautiful places to live in America. It's just like breathtaking to live on the front range of the mountains. So it's beautiful, but at the same time, your body's kind of like, why'd you move here? So your body doesn't like moving to Colorado Springs because the altitude is so high. Depending on where you live in Colorado, the altitude's anywhere from 5,000 to 7,000 feet above sea level. Where we lived, our house was about 7,100 feet above sea level. That's a mile and a half above sea level. Some of you know Denver's called the Mile High City. There's a reason for it. It's 5,280 feet above sea level. The problem when you're high, that high in the altitude, there's lack of oxygen in the air and there's a lack of air pressure. So when you put your body into that altitude, it kind of freaks out a little bit. And it's kind of like, why'd you bring me here? Because your body starts to panic because there's less oxygen. So you're breathing like at a normal rate like you do in Michigan. Suddenly you're like breathing the same rate and you're like, your body's like, you're going to die. You're going to die if you don't do something different. So your body begins what is called an inefficient physiological response. So immediately, like let's say you fly into Denver, you fly into Colorado Springs, you get off the plane, your body's like, why are you here? You shouldn't live here. So your body quickly is going to adjust to the altitude very quickly by causing your heart rate to increase. Some people's heart rate will increase twice as much in order to breathe more to get more oxygen. The second thing that your body does is going to increase your blood pressure because something has to sustain all of this activity going on. And the third thing is your body will say, uh, we probably should eliminate anything that we don't need right now. So you might find yourself making excessive trips to the bathroom. And that's going to cause this whole problem of dehydration. So you're going to have this little, this little thing going on where your body's kind of flipping out, going, why are you here? It's panicking, it's breathing more. Now, as you know, that's not a really good long-term solution. People actually can die from high-altitude sickness if their body doesn't figure out something else to do. So your body is going to eventually go through this process called acclimatization. Acclimatization. That is when your body says, okay... If you're really going to be up here, we got to do something rather than breathing really fast. So your body's going to start making more red blood cells. Your spinal cord's going to say increase the production of red blood cells. Red blood cells are going to increase uh, your, uh, going to make your blood a little thicker, and it's going to increase oxygen bringing oxygen to the rest of your body. At the same time, your lung capacity is actually going to increase. Your lungs are actually going to grow so you can live at that altitude. You can breathe in more air and get the oxygen. And the third thing that your body is going to do is your whole vascular system is all going to increase. But in order to go from this inefficient physiological response to acclimatization, you're going to need to rest. You're going to take a little time to adjust to the altitude. Now, if you're just going to fly into the mountains, stay there for a week or two while you're going to go skiing, your body's going to, it's going to, it's going to help you adjust. But if you're going to live in Colorado for a while, it's going to take several months for you to actually, your body to acclimatize to live in that altitude. 
But the number one mistake that tourists make is they fly into Colorado and they think, we're on vacation. I'm not resting. I got to go. I got to do stuff. So they skip that little part of rest. The next thing you know, they got altitude sickness and they got flu-like symptoms for a week. In order to live in Colorado, in order to visit Colorado, you're going to need to learn how to rest, at least for the first couple days. And I think quite often our relationship with Jesus Christ is a little like getting used to living at a higher altitude. Because in order to have a relationship with Christ, you're going to have to learn how to rest. Not the sleepy time rest, but knowing how to rest in his care, to rest in his provision, to rest in the truth that he is going to take care of you. Another word for rest is a belief, and another visual illustration of belief that I used a few weeks ago is floating. Sometimes we've got to float and say, God, I'm going to really trust that you're taking care of me. But so often we do what a typical tourist does when they fly into Colorado. They fly into Denver, they catch another plane to Aspen, and they're like, hey, I'm on vacation. I'm not going to waste a day or two acclimatization. They're like, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go skiing. So they quickly start going skiing. They get dehydrated. They get sick, and they're going to blow the rest of their vacation. And I think sometimes we do that with our walk with Jesus. We start out knowing, we kind of get the idea when you follow Jesus that there's two things you need to do, trust and obey. It's kind of that little kid song, trust and obey, for there's no other way. Kind of know that song. It's really kind of the simplicity of the Christian faith can boil down to a four-year-old song. In fact, I'll tell you a little side story here. When my brother, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, kind of high church, high Calvinist culture, high education. And so my brother's in sixth grade, and he has to take this big catechism test. And, you know, this is like, like, this is like very important for my family. And so the first question was, what are the two sacraments of the Christian Reformed Church? And my brother wrote down, trust and obey. <laughs> Which if you're from the Christian Reformed Church, the two sacraments are communion and, oh boy, Oh, uh, communion. Oh boy, baptism. Phew! Almost. Thank you, Becky. <laughs> Yay, Becky. Well, my parents would not be happy right now. <laughs> but I mean, I think about you know, really, the two sacraments of the church should be trust and obey. I mean, I I, I don't even remember this whole thing about baptism. But I mean, trust and obey—that's the simplicity of the faith. That all you do is obey Jesus, and then out of your obedience, he's just going to cause everything to work itself out for good. But so often we get that in our faith. We're like, okay, I got this obedience part, but Jesus, you take a little bit too long. I can't wait for you to do what I actually anticipate for you to do. So we get kind of all controlling in that whole area, and we're like that tourist that you just can't wait to rest. And resting is such an integral part of our faith. And so I want to talk about, I want to talk about resting today. I want to talk about the benefits of resting because we need physical rest, but also we need spiritual rest. That's why I want to look at Hebrews 4 today. I love the chapter of the Hebrew 4. It's this encouraging chapter of the Bible that God offers to each of us this invitation to rest and peace as well as deliverance and to fulfillment. But in order to understand Hebrews 4, I want to jump to back to Hebrews 3. This is kind of the big warning chapter of the Bible where God's getting all serious with, um, about the... Um, to the church, and he's kind of telling them what happens if you don't take the time to do some spiritual resting in your life. So in Hebrews 3, uh, verse 12, you kind of get the big warning of, of Hebrews, and it says, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and the hardening against God. See, this is the big warning in this chapter. 
Basically, the author is saying, look, the deception in your heart could actually cause you to turn away from God. That even without knowing, you could enter into this, this relationship with God that you are just being incredibly disobedient. And it all comes down to your lack of rest and trust in God. So that kind of leaves the reader, after you read Hebrews 3, you kind of wonder, what happens if you miss God? What happens if you're really disobedient with God? Do you get a second chance? I think we all say, yeah, we get a second chance, but why? Where does that theology of a second chance even come forth? And we're going to see it in chapter 4, because in chapter 4, the author addresses the question, can you miss out on God's promises, and what do you do if you do? miss out. So Hebrews 3, it's kind of this whole structure set up to remind us what the Israelites did when they got out of the land, when they got out of Egypt. God tells them, look, I'm going to take you in the promised land. You're going to live in the promised land. It's going to be a wonderful life for you. Everything is going to be perfect. So they're in this middle zone between Egypt and the promised land, and the Israelites just can't get their act together. They so refuse to trust in God or they refuse to rest in God that he's going to take care of them. So they start getting all panicky and they end up getting all, um, all grumbly. And so you have this entire generation that does not make it into the promised land. And so kind of chapter three is kind of this sad little scenario of you got a whole people group. They totally missed out on what God had for them. They're literally days away from entering in the promised land, but they're grumbling and complaining and lack of faith they didn't enter in. So the whole point of chapter 3 is that disobedience can lead to a loss of inheritance. Now the disobedience is not a loss of salvation. You notice the Israelites, they didn't get sent back to Egypt. They kept their salvation, but they never entered in the promised land. They never entered in this new way of living. They never experienced the fullness that God has for them. So you can imagine after you read chapter 3, your big question is, what do you do if you miss God? What do you do if you've been disobedient? So I want to read chapter 4 to kind of give you an idea of what is God's solution if you miss out on the rest that he offers you, if you miss out on trusting him. So chapter 4 says, God promise, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. All right, there's the good news. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared his rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As far as the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Even though this rest has already been ready since since he made the world. We know it is ready because of the place in Scripture where he mentioned the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time to enter his rest. And that time is today. God announces through David much later in the words already quoted, Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Now if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labor, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fail. 
For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting through soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Now this is such an encouraging chapter that right after chapter 3 where you hear about the whole group of people that never entered the promised land, Hebrews 4 says, but you have a second chance. You have another opportunity to experience what God has for you. So this whole idea of rest and enter, you, read, you see how many times throughout this scripture, the two words commonly used were rest. In different translations, it'll say rest up to 20 different times. But it's that invitation is there to come and experience the fullness that God has for you. And so you see oh, so many other parts of scripture talk about rest. Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. We see so clearly that this rest is a gift from God. I think often when we think of the word rest, we think of vacation. We think of sleeping. We think of watching Netflix all day. That's not the kind of rest that we're referring to when we talk about spiritual rest. Instead, what we're talking about is that time of spending time with God and trusting in God. But see, in chapter 4, the author is going to give you a very good understanding of what rest does he mean. Rest is kind of a tricky word because you go different places in the Bible, you're going to get different explanations. I probably could give you 10 or 15 different explanations of the word rest. But in this scripture, it's kind of interesting. The author is going to go back and reference the rest that is talking about in Genesis 2. So the author references back in Genesis 2 about the story of creation. And what do we read? We read that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And sometimes we look at that and you're like, why in the world does God rest? Why is he tired? What is he doing the seventh day? Now we know God is not tired, but I think one of the best short little synopsis of why did God rest comes from John Mark Comer, where he says, the reason God rested is because we are made in his image. Therefore, we are made to mirror and mimic what God is like to the world. God works, so we work. God rests so we rest. Work and rest are in a symbiotic relationship. You can't learn how to rest well until you learn how to work well. And you can't learn how to work well until you learn how to rest well. The two rest and work are in a symbiotic relationship. And so from the very beginning of creation, God wanted to show us that rest is essential for you to be able to work. So what does rest really mean? So in Genesis 2, if you're going to look at the word rest in Genesis 2, it is the word Shabbat in the Hebrew. Shabbat sounds an awfully like the word Sabbath. That's where you get Sabbath from. The whole idea of rest or Shabbat or Sabbath is that you take time to stop or to cease from your daily activity. That's why people talk about Sabbath day, you rest. You stop what you're typically doing. But another translation for the word Shabbat is to celebrate. That seventh day of the week that you rest isn't just a day to cease, but it's a day to celebrate. And what you're celebrating 
is the fact that God has provided every single thing that you need. The seventh day of rest is a day for you to sit back and say, I don't have to strive to work for anything because if I need it, God has already provided it. That's the beautiful thing of why God rested on the seventh day. Everything was made in the six days. He had nothing left to do on the seventh. And so that is part of our posture that we take when we rest is we sit back and say, I have what I needed. I don't need to strive. I don't need to panic. I don't need to worry. But God is going to provide every single thing that I need. So that's the first part of rest that God provides. And see, the nice thing about that is you don't have to keep producing. That's the tricky thing about the Sabbath day of rest. You don't strive, you don't have to produce anything more on the seventh day, but you can rest. Not producing is incredibly hard for a typical American. Usually in our American culture, your value is determined by how much you can produce. And so to take a day off and say, I'm not gonna produce, that to a lot of people sounds like, no way. I got to produce something. So you find even like really good godly people on their seventh day of rest, they still try to produce something. Just be like, oh yeah, I I still did it. That's a hard thing to be able to sit back and say, God's provided. I don't need to make anything today. So, but there's two more things that help us understand rest. So you go to Genesis 2 verse 3 and it says, what did God do next? It says, God blessed the seventh day and he declared it holy because it was a day when he rested from the work. So anyway, so we got the order to understand rest, you are going to understand blessed in the word holy as well. So the word blessed is the Hebrew word barak, and it's usually in the reference in scripture when they use the word blessed or barak, it's going to talk about kneeling and worship. But as you notice, the author in Hebrews, he referenced the creation story. So in the creation story, the word Barak is used three different times. And the three different times it's used, it has the meaning of reproduction. It has the meaning of duplication. Now, we're not always talking about babies. It's reproducing energy, reproducing creativity, reproducing longevity, reproducing energy. That's kind of the gist of what Genesis 3, the story in the creation story when it brings up the word Barak. You remember the first time it brings up Barak in Genesis, it says God blessed the animals and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Then God blesses the human race and says exactly the same thing, be fruitful and multiply. And then God blessed the seventh day. Why would he bless the seventh day? See, God wants to bless your rest. So when you enter into your rest, it has the ability to create new creativity. It has the ability to give you new fruitfulness. It has the ability to give you new effectiveness. It has the ability to give you new strength. That's the idea of entering into rest that God will renew your strength and give you new energy. If you're here a couple weeks ago, you know I quoted John Eldridge. Been listening to a lot of John Eldridge lately for some reason. I find his he had talk very interesting that he did on trauma. He was talking about the impact of COVID, the trauma that it has on the and still has on the American or the world's population. And some people are like, no, 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 the trauma's gone. You know, that, that COVID's kind of done. We're not doing the mass. We're kind of moving behind that. We're not experiencing the trauma, but that's exactly not right. The trauma is still impacting people. Why? Because trauma has a way of draining your energy. It drains your strength. And most people thought, okay, 
COVID's getting over, I'll go on a two weeks vacation, I'll renew my strength and I'll come back and I'll be okay. That doesn't work that way. When your energy is depleted, when your reserves are depleted, when your battery pack is drained, you don't replenish it by going on a two-week vacation. That does not work. You replenish your battery pack by resting in Christ. You replenish it by taking a Sabbath day to sit before Christ because Christ is the only one that can renew your energy because we see right here when God blesses your rest, it has the ability to increase your strength, increase your ideas, increase your capacity to have your energy renewed. I think that's missing right now in our culture. I think we notice it. People are edgy. You know, I'll talk about sex in sermons. I won't bring up politics. That's a scary subject. You can't even say politics and people are assuming, hey, you want to fight? Want to fight? I mean, that's the way it is right now. I mean, it's like, it's scary. I probably should have said, hey, done a message today on the propositions, but I'm not that brave. But I mean, it is something that we need to take serious right now, that people are edgy. People are on the brink of screaming at you because their reserves are so low. We need to take serious the Sabbath that God has called us to and trust that he's going to renew our energy. And see, the third thing about um, the Sabbath day is God blessed it and he called it holy. Why did he call rest holy? Why did he call blessed holy? Because he wanted you to see the seriousness of the word. The whole idea of Sabbath being holy is that it's set apart. We need to find time to set apart in our schedule to be with the Lord. So chapter 4 of Hebrews is interesting because you have the word rest that's used and you got various definitions that are pulled in from the Bible. So when it talks about rest, it's not just talking about the seventh day of the week where you kind of do a different day from the rest of your week to be with the Lord, but it's talking about a heart posture. It's talking about a whole attitude that we have, not just one day a week, but that every day we say, you know what, I'm going to trust that God's going to provide for me. I'm going to trust that God's going to take care of me. I'm going to trust that I don't have to strive. I just need to be obedient to God, and he's going to do what he's called me. Then he's going to take care of me like he promised to do. So you're probably wondering, why am I bringing up all this rest? Because I'm in the middle of a series on sex and sexuality. Where are we going with this? See, I'm bringing it up because the whole purpose of doing a series on sexuality and spirituality is because God has called each of us into this deep and intimate relationship with him as well as to other people. That part of being created in the image of God is that we were designed for relationships. We we're designed for community with God and every single one of us desires that. The last two weeks I talked about the fact that in the Garden of Eden, God looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for you to be alone. That in the midst of being alone, our loneliness is not part of our brokenness. Our loneliness is actually part of our perfection. It's part of the fact that God created us to live in community. And it's interesting, for the last three weeks, four weeks, doing the series on sexuality and spirituality, what people keep talking to me about is friendships. I thought people would be asking me more questions about sexuality as I would talk more about gender and a lot of the social topics. People keep talking to me about friendships, saying I'm glad you're talking about that because I feel like I, I don't have deep and meaningful friendships. I feel like I don't have people that I can really talk with to be open and honest and transparent with. 
So I'm bringing up this whole idea of rest and second chances because I think some people feel like maybe I just missed out on the opportunity to have deep friendships. And Hebrews 4 is a reminder you never miss out on the promises that God has for you. Maybe it's been a while, but God always will give you what you're needed. And we know from the promises of Scripture is that you were designed to live in community. We were not, Adam could not enjoy living in the Garden of Eden alone. Here the guy's in paradise, and that still wasn't good enough for him. He had to have a friend to live in the garden with. So I'm bringing up Hebrews 4 and putting it into this series because so often people, our desire is deeper friendships. But so many people find themselves in this situation of, I want deep and meaningful friendships, and I know I need to be honest and transparent, but that's hard for me to do. So many people live with this idea that I want to be vulnerable, but at the same time I need to protect myself. And so often we live in that stage of wondering, I, if I, oh, would that person really accept me or would I be rejected once again? So often by living in that place and not being completely vulnerable, we find ourselves missing out on what God really has for us. And that's why I love chapter four of Hebrews. It's a story of second chances. It's God saying, you know what? There's never too late to enter into the abundant life that I have for you. It's never too late to experience the rest that I have for you that might be found in deep, good friendships with other people. But we got to go and look in chapter 3 and remember what blocked the rest for the Israelites. What blocked them was the hardening of their own hearts. Their hearts had become hardened to what God had for them. So in Hebrews chapter 4, God comes through with this promise that's going to shock people. It's going to shock him because this verse I'm going to read to you, I think, has been used so much incorrectly. The verse says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpened two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Now, when you first read the scripture, it actually sounds intimidating. It sounds pretty scary. You have words in there like, everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. Feel a little uncomfortable. It says, God's going to expose your innermost thoughts and desires. Like, I don't think I like that either. See, many people have been raised in a culture where they have used the scripture against people. They've used the scripture to scare people. They, when they read the scripture, they do the mean voice. They do the spooky voice, the spooky middle school retreat like, God knows what you're doing. He saw your internet browser. He knows exactly what you're doing. You keep doing that, you're going to go to hell. That's not what the scriptures say. This is a scripture of the kindness and compassion of God. This is not a scripture that God says, I have a sword and I'm going to use it against you. No. This is God saying, I have a sword and I'm going to use it for you. I'm going to use my sword for your protection. I'm going to use my sword to set you free so you can enjoy every single promise that I have for you. The promise in this verse is God is saying to the Israelites, you're not going to do it on your own. You tried before. 
you're going to try again. You'll never experience the promises I have unless I come into the situation with my sword and I do something for you that you can't do on your own. The first thing that we need to understand in this, in this verse when it says the word of God, it's not just referencing the Bible. It's going way beyond that. The complete Bible was not even canonized when this was written. When it says the word of God, it's saying the written word, but it's also saying revelation in general. Basically, the scripture is saying that God will reveal things to you and he will not be limited by his Bible. He will speak to you directly. He will speak to you through friends. He will speak to you through prophetic word. He will speak to you through a walk in nature. God will use anything possible to communicate with you what you need to know. You don't have to have a Bible for God to speak to you, is what this verse is saying. And that is so comforting. Because a lot of people will say, I don't understand the Bible when I read it. Fine, God's not limited by that. God will find a way to speak to you. I think one of the silliest things, and that's a nice word to say, stupid, is when people say that God only speaks to you through the Bible. Why would God limit himself? He can speak to you through any way. And that's the whole point of the scripture saying, if you are missing out on the promises, God will move heaven and earth to make sure he communicates clearly to you because God wants you to experience every good and perfect thing that he has for you. But see, so often, our deceptive heart comes into play. So often our heart gets kind of messed up. We know that behind every action is an antecedent that is causing a behavior. That's a little special needs language for you. Our oldest son has severe autism, and every time he has a behavioral episode, we're always like, what's the antecedent? What caused that behavior? So we're always in, yeah, I can tell the special needs families are all smiling at me now. You're always saying, what caused that behavior? That's the same thing we need to do in all of our life. Every one of us at times to time, what time from time to time will experience unwanted behavior. Unwanted behavior is simply the things that we do that at the end of the day we're like, oh, why did I do that? I wish I didn't do that. All of us experience this unwanted behavior and what the scripture is trying to help us to understand is why did we do that? What was the antecedent behind it? What caused us to do that? See, so often our posture is when we do something stupid, we're like, oh, let's pretend I didn't do it. Let's not talk about it. Let's ignore it. Let's pretend it's not there. But really the smartest thing to do when you do something that you didn't want to do is to get really, really curious and to say, why did I do that? What was the antecedent behind it? See, so often your unhealthy behavior is a signal for you to understand what the real problem is. See, your problem is not your unwanted behavior. Your problem is the antecedent behind it that's causing you to do those things. In this scriptures, God is saying, I want you to figure that out. See, so often addiction is really another way to survive. Little 12-year-old kids don't get drunk because they think it's a fun thing to do. They're doing it because it helps them cope with a difficult life. Sometimes your addiction, sometimes the unwanted behavior to do is actually your best attempt to survive. Sometimes people are so broken that they're doing things that they don't want to do. They're participating in things because they're simply trying to stay alive. And God knows that he's not going to pull things away from you that help you survive until he gives you something better. That's what 
this is about. God's saying, I'm going to give you something better. See, in Proverbs 4, it says, guard your heart because everything flows from it. We need to be very careful with our heart. See, God has placed in every single human being's longings, desires, goals, things that we want to achieve. God put them inside of us. Why? Because he wanted to show to you that he can meet every single need that you have. Every desire you have, he wants to meet. But the problem is, we don't live in the garden anymore. And so often the world's trying to meet our needs in ways that God never anticipated. See, God wants to meet your needs and he wants the friends and community that you have to meet your needs. And because we're not in the Garden of Eden, sometimes we find our needs met by other places and persons and things that God never intended for us. See, God designed for us to need acceptance and to go to him for acceptance, but yet we experience so much rejection in the world. God designed us to feel secure, but we get so much rejection and insecurity from the world that it just depletes our strength and makes us look to other places. So many of us don't find our longings and our needs met. And one of the reasons we don't find our longings and needs met is because we get to the place we don't even know what we're looking for anymore. How many of you know that experience when you walk into a room of your house and you're like, I forgot why I walked in here? Yeah, daily. That's East Front Row. You walk in there and you're like, I don't know why I'm here. Have you ever gone to like, 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 like Home Depot and you're like, I don't even know why I'm here. And I drove 20 minutes to get here. And you walk around like, going, why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I here? Most of us do that with our life on a daily basis with these longings, desires inside of us. We're like, I know something's missing, but I don't know what it is. I know I need something, but I don't know what it is. So we go looking in all the places we shouldn't be looking for the things that we think we're desiring. So we're just kind of by the process of elimination. I'll try this. No, that didn't work. I'll try that. That didn't work. That's discouraging. That almost just makes you feel so unstable when you're looking for something, but you don't know what it is. That is what God says. He's going to do for you in Hebrews 4. This is what God says. See, oh, this makes me so excited. Um, you know, I'm going to cry. I'm so excited. But so many people use that Hebrews 4 where God says that he's going to expose your innermost thoughts and desires, use it against you like God's going to tell all the stupid things you did. Know what this verse means. It's God's going to show you what you're looking for. He's going to show you what you really desire. He's going to help you figure out why you walked in the living room. He's going to say, this is what you're looking for. That's the good news of Hebrew 4. God's going to put you in touch with every single desire, every single longing that is in your heart, everything that you need, everything you know that you need to feel complete. God's saying, I will tell you what that is. That's a blessing. That's God moving on your behalf, and that just makes us all excited. Because we want to be fulfilled, but we can't be fulfilled until we know what we're looking for. And God says, I'll show you exactly what you're looking for. That's a blessing from God. That is a relief to know that God knows what you really need to have. Because see, what God wants to do, he wants to meet every single need and longing that you have in your heart. God wants to heal any of the antecedents, any things that are causing you to look for fulfillment in the wrong places. 
this whole series I'm doing on spirituality and sexuality has been kind of fun. And I was kind of getting to the place to talk more about topics like gender and LGBTQ and straight and all this kind of stuff. And I'm actually going to hit a pause button till January. Because so many people have talked to me about friendships. Feeling like they're missing out on it. Feeling like some of these deepest longings that they have in their life that were designed to be met through friendships isn't happening. See, Jesus, you can't just say Jesus is going to meet all my needs. He will, but he also designed friendship to meet some of your needs. So many people have these core longings in their life that are unmet and they're feeling unsatisfied. So what I'm going to do on these seven Sundays that are leading up to the Sunday before Christmas, I want to each Sunday talk about what these core longings, a lot of different mental health professionals talk about seven core longings that we have. You can find these everywhere in Scripture. But I want to talk about how Jesus is designed to meet every one of those longings. So as we come into this Advent season that we are starting to celebrate why Jesus came, we can see that Jesus came to meet every single longing and desire that a human could possibly have. And I think that's a good way to lead into the Christmas season of Jesus came to meet every single need that you have. I think that would be good. So that's what we're going to do. And then in the, in the next year, we'll go back to sex and sexuality. But I think it's a good way to end the year because Jesus wants to meet our needs. You know, this whole year was designed as a community to talk about spiritual gifts talk about spiritual gifts and to use our spiritual gifts and talk about, um, talk about uh, spiritual conflict. And I love talking about spiritual gifts. But I found throughout this year a lot of people get a lot of self-affirmation out of their spiritual gifts. A lot of people feel like, oh yeah, I got the spiritual gift. Okay, God must really love me. I must be a better person. Okay, that's not, I mean, I, it's great to love your spiritual gift. That's really good. But God never designed you to be affirmed by your spiritual gifts. God designed for you to be affirmed by God. Your spiritual gifts are gifts that God has given to you to help meet the needs of other people. Donna likes that. So we got to wrap up this year saying, why does God give me all these gifts? It's not so I feel good like, yay, I can prophesy. Yay, I can teach. Yay, I can pass it. No. My spiritual gifts are all designed to bless everybody else. I need to figure out how my spiritual gift can meet another person's core longing. That's what we're called to do. So that's how we're going to wrap up the year. God, thank you that you're a good God that meets every one of our needs. Thank you, God, that you sent your son to show us what we really desire. And Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness that you say, I can meet those needs. There's nothing that I can't meet for you. So God, help us to be a people who rest in your care, rest in your provision, we pray. God, I pray you bless this body, bless those at home watching online. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just encourage us as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.